Well, good morning. Thank you so much for your gracious invitation. It is uh, great to be back with you. I bring you uh, greetings from the Christians at Forge Road Bible Chapel and a good report of the work throughout Baltimore, Maryland. We're going to start this morning in the Gospel of Matthew and chapter 19. Gospel of Matthew, chapter 19. And I trust that you're going to find our discussion today to be uh, intelligent, interesting, most of all, an exhortation unto a purposeful life in Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about a parable that Jesus told to his 12 disciples, one that puts to them, one that puts to us questions that are right at the core of discipleship, those that, are being a, those that concern being a Christian in life in well, as well as in profession. Questions that were later explored by the Apostle Paul when he wrote about being a fool for the sake of Christ. We're going to pick up the reading in Matthew 19 and verse 27. Matthew 19, verse 27. Then Peter answered and said to him, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my name's sake shall receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. Now when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You also go into the vineyard. Whatever is right, I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did likewise. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing idle and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You also go into the vineyard. And whatever is right, you will receive. So when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his steward, Call the laborers and give them their wages, beginning with the last to the first. And, with those, and when those came who were hired about the eleventh hour, they each received a denarius. But when the first came, they supposed that they would receive more. And they likewise received each a denarius. And when they had received it, they complained against the landowner, saying, These last, these last men have worked only one hour. And you made them equal to us who have borne the burden and heat of the day. But he answered one of them and said, Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own things? Or is your eye evil because I am good? So the, first, so the last will be first, and the first last for many are called, but few are chosen. May the Lord bless, giving us a good understanding of his word together. And can you, good, thank you. Je Jesus of Nazareth famously was a carpenter by trade. Now, we have greatly romanticized and greatly Americanized his vocation. 
We imagine him learning from Joseph and working in a carpenter shop, serving the needs of the good citizens of Nazareth as they stop in to get their wagons fixed or need a new wheel or need some furniture for their homes. It's a nice idea that has no possibility of being true. Uh, First, uh, capitalism as a concept does not exist. And it's not going to exist for about 900 years. There's no such thing as private enterprise. There's no such thing as a carpenter owning a carpenter's shop and selling his products. And secondly, Nazareth is a nothing place. The topography of Galilee rises as you go west to the sea. The hills dotted west, the hills west of the sea. There are about 200 small villages dotting those hills. Each one of them is isolated from the outside world. Remember how in his ministry, when Jesus said to, when Jesus was going from town to town, preaching in each one, he said to his disciples, you won't finish going through all the towns and villages of Galilee before the Son of Man comes. Nazareth is situated inside a bowl atop a ridge north of the Jezreel Valley. Valley, As you might expect, it's been the subject of many archaeological digs. Nazareth was a hamlet, a village, where if there was a main street, it was paved with mud, and the sewage system was the open field, a place on nobody's map and where no one went. Population estimates, maybe 100, maybe 200, Being the general consensus, that's about what? The number of people who are in this building today. It's geographically isolated, no trade routes in and out. Archaeological digs in the area and the time have found the pottery all locally made, simple, utilitarian, crude, nothing that indicates any wealth, nothing that indicates commerce with any of the villages around. Buildings are made of mud brick, floor above is straw, a roof above is straw, floor below is dirt. Most of the citizens of Nazareth survived by subsistence farming, working the fields to produce enough grain to make bread or to harvest enough grapes or olives. Those are the three staples of the diet, bread and grapes and olives. There's no such thing as a middle class. There's no such thing as a middle class, and almost everybody lives in grinding poverty. Their lives are filled with the things that Jesus would one day ennoble with his Sermon on the Mount, like being poor, yours is the kingdom of heaven, being hungry so that you will be filled, weeping in the toils and the sorrow of life. When Jesus taught people to pray, give us this day our daily bread, that's exactly what he meant. Lord, give us enough food to eat today and we'll worry about tomorrow, tomorrow. There is no way the 200 people living in crushing poverty can support a carpenter shop. Nobody's stopping in on their lunch break to to, to talk about getting new dining room furniture. Nobody has dining room furniture. Nobody has a dining room. Nobody has a lunch break. And by the way, there's no wood. The ground there cannot support any, any uh, forests to harvest. There are no building projects going on. The buildings that are there are, made out, are not made out of wood. They're made out of mud, brick, and straw. There's no market for a carpenter to sell to. There's no wood for a carpenter to shape. 
So how does that fit with Jesus being a carpenter? Well, I can't tell you for sure, but I think that we can get very close. Because about three miles north of Nazareth, and if I can, yeah, about three miles north of Nazareth, there is the city of Sephoris, the larger S that you see there. A generation before, King Herod the Great had built a kingdom that he secured by his agreement with Rome, and then he undertook building projects the likes of which have rarely been seen. Whole planned cities like Caesarea arose out of nothing. Aqueducts spanned the landscape, bringing water to urban populations. Great towers and fortresses were built. After Herod's death, his kingdom was divided according to his will, and his son Herod Archelaus ruled in Judea. His son Herod Philip in what is today, in Ituria, uh, uh, which is today part of the Golan Heights, and his son Herod Antipas. Actually, the last time that I was with you, we talked about the household of Herod Antipas. He became the ruler of Galilee. This is the man who executed John the Baptist and who also sat in judgment of Jesus on the day that he was crucified. Herod Antipas, like his father, was a great politician. He was a great builder. And he embarked on a huge project to rebuild the city of Sephoris. The Ornament of Galilee, it was called. Playground for the rich and famous. This huge building project was going on when young Yeshua of Nazareth was just coming, just coming of age. The word in our Bible translated carpenter is the word tecton, which means a skilled builder. And in Sephoris, there was lots of work for carpenters. And it's not hard to imagine, imagine young Yeshua, the oldest son of a widowed mother, first as a teenager and then as a man in his 20s, to daily shoulder his tools and make what would be a, about a 40-minute walk. How many of you have ever had a 40-minute commute to work? to Sephoris, to go to the marketplace, to find work for the day, and to earn a daily wage. Look again at um, chapter 20, the first few verses. They describe day laborers who have gone into the marketplace looking for work that day, trying to find something to earn the daily bread for their families. In other words, this parable describes the type of day that Jesus himself would have known. One of many workers who come into the city in a daily search for work. And if I can divert our lesson for a moment and just get up on my soapbox, I think that we greatly underutilize what we can know about the formative years of Jesus of Nazareth and the impact that has on the gospel story. This parable describes laborers and artisans who would go into the marketplace looking for work every day. And I don't know, and nobody knows, but I think a lot about that 20-year-old man, his widowed mother back at home, his younger brothers and sisters. You know, every Christmas season we talk about the humility of the Lord, born in poverty, laid in a manger, and certainly there's truth in that. But the newborn doesn't know that he lays in a manger. To me, this young man at work, maybe at Nazareth, I think much more likely walking daily to Sephora's, is a compelling picture of his humility. 
picking up his tools to begin a new day, hoisting a beam while the, the, the foreman is yelling at the crew, or as in this parable, standing in line at the end of the day to get paid, standing in line in the be- at the beginning of the day to get hired. Okay, I need four men. One, two, three, four. Sorry, Yeshua, don't have anything for you. You might want to go down. I hear somebody's looking for maybe some workers in a vineyard outside of town. And I think about him in those days. And when I do, I will never say that any job or any work is beneath me or not worth it. I respectfully suggest there are clues all over the Gospels of what Jesus' formative years were like, and we greatly underutilize them. Herod Antipas was very Hellenistic, very Greek. Look at the picture. That is not some guy interested in maintaining Jewish culture. There in Sephoris, he built a theater. You can see it here in the renderings. That's a picture of what remains of it. It's high, at its height, it could hold an audience of 3,000. And what was showing on the stage was a new art form in the region. All the rage, especially among the upper class. New cultural import from Greece. Drama. Anybody here know the Greek word for actor? Greek word for actor is hypocrite. It wasn't a bad word. It wasn't a bad word. Up on the stage were the hypocrites. Playing a part, acting a role, pretending to be something for the applause of the multitude. In Galatians, Paul used the phrase, playing the hypocrite. The Academy Award this this year for best hypocrite in a leading role is, goes to. That was not lost on this young carpenter. There was nothing remotely like Greek theater in, in Nazareth or any of those small towns. But Jesus had certainly seen it. Seen it. When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance. For they disfigure their faces. It's all makeup. It's all masks. It's all show. That they may appear to be fasting. It's all an act. Today, if you go to a theater, they sound the chimes when it's time to start. You know, bing, bong, bing, time to take your seat. Show's about to start. In those days, When the play was about to start, they'd blow a trumpet. It's outside, trumpet sounds. Time to find your seats, time to start the show. Jesus said, when you do a charitable deed, don't sound the trumpet before you like the actors do, like the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets with a big religious show. In other words, and, or, or, or these words, as Jesus said a few days after what we read in Matthew 19, Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses. Now let those words sink in. Don't rush by them. Do you think that Jesus of Nazareth had seen that? Poor widows, their houses taken, foreclosed upon, Put out? I do. Remember that his mother is a widow. Remember that Mary does not have a place to live. Remember at the cross, John took Mary to his house because Mary had no home. Had Jesus seen his mother turned out 
by the Hellenistic rich of the cities? Remember the words of his brother after the flesh, James. True religion is to visit the orphans and widows in their affliction. This family knew about widows and orphans. So here, perhaps, Jesus gives us a glimpse of what of those formative days and tells us this parable about workers in the city looking for work. Jesus says that the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. He finds them in the marketplace, and he hired some for a denarius a day, the standard acceptable wage. Then at the third hour, now the workday starts at 6 a.m., so it's now 9 o'clock in the morning. He, wants, he goes back into the marketplace and hires others. Then again at 12 noon, then again at 3 o'clock, and finally at 5 o'clock, some who have been looking for work all day, trying to find something, now hoping to earn just one hour's pay to bring home for their families. And to each one he says, whatever is right, you will receive. 6 p.m., workday is over, everybody lines up to get paid. Wages are distributed, and each worker receives a denarius. The same wage for each one, no matter how long he's worked. Well, those who are hired at the start of the day, they are not happy. They think their payment is unfair, saying these men have worked only the last one hour, and you made them equal to us who have borne the heat and the burden of the day. I know you promised to do right by them, but in doing right by them, you're doing wrong by us. But the landowner says, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with my own thing? Notice here the word lawful in verse 15. What we have here in this parable is perhaps the first ever claim of employment discrimination. These workers think that they have been discriminated against that they are getting less than they deserve. They measure their reward against what is given to others. They see what others have gotten. They're upset. They're disappointed. They think the owner is treating them unfairly. Owner falls back on his contract, and if this case was tried in court, where I live as a lawyer, the owner would certainly win. But of course, this parable is not about employment law. It's about spiritual things. So let's look at them in detail. We easily understand that the landowner is the Lord God, and he's looking for workers. If you take nothing else today, take this. At any time you are willing to work, the landowner is ready to use you. He's always looking for workers. The vineyard is the work of the gospel, in all of its many forms and ministries. Isaiah said that Israel was God's vineyard planted on a very fertile hill. Paul wrote that the church is God's field. Okay, pretty easy so far. Who are the workers? Is that us? Why are they hired at different times of the day? 
And most importantly, who are these workers who end up disappointed and upset? I mean, think about this. At the end of the day, when all the harvest is in, when all the workers are called together, are there going to be Christians who are going to be complaining? Who are going to be grumbling? Who are going to be disappointed at the end of the day to the landlord when we all get to glory? How is that possible? Now, some reading this uh, focus and I think get distracted by the progression of when the workers are hired. They say, well, maybe the early Christians are the, 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 the early workers are the first century Christians, like the apostles, then who, those who came in later years, like the Reformation Christians and the Great Awakening, and now it's the 11th hour. But that doesn't make any sense. I mean, generations replace one another. Generations give way to one another. The first workers in the parable did not give way to the next generation. Once you're in the vineyard, you work the whole time. The first generation isn't still working. Okay, if it's not generations, well, maybe the first workers are those who were saved early in life. And then some saved in their teen years and in later years and finally at the end of their life. But that doesn't make any sense either. I mean, in your experience, if somebody turns to the Lord late in life and is saved late in life, does that get you angry? Does that get you upset with God that they're going to get to go to heaven just like you? I've never seen anybody respond like that. Recently at Forge Road Bible Chapel, uh, a man stood up at the end of breaking a bread, and he talked about how he was witnessing to his father-in-law who, who had a terminal illness and how his father-in-law just a day or two before he died made a profession of faith and believed in Jesus Christ as his savior. How do you think we responded to that? Were we angry? Were we mad? Did we say, hey, I've done Bible school for 50 years. Do you know how many casseroles I've brought? How many casseroles I brought to the, to the potluck suppers? He didn't bring any casseroles, but now he's just going to waltz into heaven? No. We pray for this. We pray harder. We rejoice when those are saved later in life. So I come back to the question, who are the workers? And who are these guys who are disappointed in the ends? And are we even asking the right questions right now? Let's back up and look at this again. This parable is in chapter 20, and it starts with verse 1. But the chapters and the verse designations are not part of the text. Matthew didn't write in those numbers. Their aides agreed upon in the 16th century to help us study. And because of this new chapter, we might think that this parable is like some new discussion or some new event has started. But in fact, as we read through chapter 19, it flows seamlessly out of the time when Jesus is coming out of, uh, is, uh, coming out of Jericho. He's left the man that we call the rich young ruler who is not going to follow him. The parable doesn't just pop up like it was Jesus' thought for the, for the day. Rather, it is told in response to a very specific question. 
Peter said to Jesus, See, we have left all and followed you. Therefore, what shall we have? Peter saw an occasion to ask the question that all the disciples were wondering about. What am I going to get for following Jesus? They had been thinking and talking about this for a while, playing the favorite parlor game in Washington, D.C. after an election. When the new administration comes in, who's going to get to be what? See, Lord, that rich guy, he wasn't willing to give up anything. Look at us. Look at all we've done. We followed you right from the start. Peter saw the opportunity to ask the question out loud, what's the payoff that comes with the deal? Matthew 19, verse 27, therefore, we, therefore, what shall we have? Therefore, what do I get? Now, many Christians today carry that mindset. They don't say it quite as bluntly as Peter did, but they talk as though somehow being a Christian will guarantee success and reward that God is obligated and bound to bless them, like discipleship is some kind of employment contract with faith for us to exercise, duties for us to do, and a corresponding benefit package, and they expect to be properly compensated. I suggest that that's what makes those workers different. It's not just the time of day they started. It was that the first Workers went into the vineyard with a particular expectation. He agreed with the laborers for a denarius a day. It was a deal. For the others, they went in relying on the landlord to do right. Now, let's say you're a worker. You take this proposal, and you take it down to the local lawyer's office. Apostle Paul wrote to the Corinthians that there's natural wisdom, there's spiritual wisdom, 